focus on your objective and set your objectives about 10 to 15% beyond your current abilities. Instead of too many people get scatterbrained and try to focus on too many different things. And the deep, dark secret is all that stuff probably works. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Best ever listeners, I'm excited to introduce you to our newest host that we're bringing on to the team. His name is Slocum Reed, along with myself and Osh. Slocum will be providing value to every interview he does. I've known Slocum for years, and I've watched his portfolio continue to grow. He currently owns and operates 65 units, including converting three units into an office building. So he's an owner-operator. He's coming from certainly a different perspective than I have. I know he's going to bring his expertise and cut through the fluff and get the best real estate investing advice ever for you. So welcome, Slocum Reed. Best ever listeners, welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Slocum Reed. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. And today we have TJ Kosen with us. How are you doing, TJ? Pretty good. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Glad to have you. TJ is the founder of Sherlock Houses and Platinum Real Estate Mastermind. The company specializes in direct-to-seller marketing, high volume of flips, rehabs, wholesales, and wholetails. He currently has a portfolio of over 200 multifamily units, 15 years of real estate experience, and he's based in Dallas, Texas. TJ, tell us about yourself. What got you into real estate? Oh, dude, bad decisions and nothing else to do. I got it. So sure. I got, in, got into real estate actually in 2006. So way back in the day, I did loans for a little while. That was fun. So in California, doing loans, you saw some of the stuff that was getting worked through. We didn't do any not good loans ourselves to speak of, but you kind of saw some of the products where it's like, well, I don't know if it's sustainable. So I saw that from the West Coast perspective and thought, well, let's get into real estate investing, not in California because prices are high and things are tough to do. So I went and bought a bunch of apartments in Memphis, Tennessee as my first investment deal. So it was 112 units, a big value add property, went out there and managed it, leased it up, did a lot of capital improvement. It was an interesting first deal. So from you there- You started by moving to Memphis from California and owner operating 112 unit space. Yeah. And they were distressed. They were about 10% occupied, 15% occupied when we got them. Yeah. I didn't say I was a smart guy. I said that- uh, <laughs> <laughs> so that was my first deal. Well, we haven't talked about the results of your first deal yet. We can decide whether or not you're smart when we get to the end. I've bought distressed assets before. I know what it's like to look crazy at the beginning and uh-huh. look like a genius a few years later. So tell us, well, first, what spurred you into 112 units with 100 units or so vacant, almost completely across the country as your first investment deal? Yeah, we looked at a bunch of different markets that we thought made sense. And for cash flow, for upside potential, it looked like a pretty good deal at the time. So we figured, what the heck? The price per unit was actually, at the time, pretty reasonable. And it was... How much know, did you pay? 8K a unit, something like that. Okay. Eight, and eight, and eight, 50, eight, was 60. this 06 or was this yeah, in the recession? Yeah, 06. So to fill in on that one, the outcome of that particular property maybe wasn't so good because what we didn't know in 2006 was that 2008 was right around the corner. If you knew that at the time, then you're smarter than pretty much everyone that was in the market. But it was a fun first deal. And I think I like to say that the project itself was very successful in terms of pretty much everything from financing to rehab to stabilization. 
And when the market hit, we had a severe drop in rents and had a kind of a market shifting dynamic, which really caught a lot of people off guard. So that was fun at the time. But from there, rebuy and sell a bunch of houses and keep going. So how did this 112 unit in Memphis come to fruition? How did it end? Do you still own it? Did you sell it? Did you? No, we sold it. We cashed out. We took a loss on it, but we cashed some of our equity out. So it wasn't catastrophic. So again, the thing about that particular property, big value add. So the construction ended up being about 15K unit. So not bad. New ACs, new water heaters. Most of the units needed new bathrooms and kitchens, but we got such bold pricing at the time that we just kind of blew through and did pretty well with it. The lease up was pretty good, but we found ourselves in 2009, 10, because we were kind of trailing, I think, in terms of what was going on with the economy. We found ourselves, when we bought, being the worst property in a pretty good neighborhood. And when we sold, I remember going back in 2010-ish and being the best property in a neighborhood where the houses were still pretty stabilized. But a lot of the multifamily units were on the downward spiral. So I think it was an overbuilt submarket where people that were in maybe a B-ish subdivision would drop their rents to keep their tenant base up, which means our properties, which were definitely at that price point kind of C's, would see an outflux of tenants and would see a decrease in the rent and even the potential rent. So I kind of saw that, didn't really see it coming probably as early as it would have been nice, but said, you know what, I don't think we want to try to weather this. Looking back on it now... Is there anything foreseeable that you guys did wrong before we went into the recession? Or is it just the bubble burst? It hit everyone in your space hard. Because like you said, B rents went down. So C tenants traded up. Did you just get caught with a sinking tide? Or is there something foreseeable, a lesson that can be learned here? Well, I'm not sure. The lesson is, I guess, be cautious of the C minus D plus product space, especially with value add but that's always a lesson in anything. That's a lesson with single family house flips. If you're putting in nice new appliances in the C minus D neighborhood, make sure they don't walk off. So that's always a bit of a lesson. In terms of the property itself, I think the only real thing that we didn't realize as well as we could have, and I'm not sure how we could have realized it better, was the excess inventory of apartments in that particular submarket. And that's a tough thing, at least at the time, anyhow, it was a tough thing to kind of get a good gauge on. Because the house prices in the area were seventy, eighty, ninety thousand dollars, and now sixteen years later, they're not significantly higher than that, but it hasn't gone downhill. But it was just an interesting little mix where there was a lot of extra apartment units in that area that they were tough to manage and tough to kind of negotiate the process on. Since then, a lot of complexes have actually been taken out of the unit mix. So a couple got condemned or taken back by the city. And again, in a subdivision or a submarket that where the houses are about a hundred grand. So it's just kind of a weird little balancing act. Obviously, we did our homework on the front end with property comps. Things were selling in the low 30s a unit at the time fixed up. So on the surface, our numbers look pretty good. But again, I don't think anyone saw the kind of catastrophic 2008, 2009 thing happen, at least not in that space. We'll get back to the show in a few minutes. But first, some sponsors I'm confident you'll get some value in learning more about. I'd like to introduce you to my good friends over at PassiveInvesting.com, a private equity real estate firm based out of the Carolinas. Passiveinvesting.com makes it easy for you to start investing in real estate. 
They focus on acquiring institutional quality apartments and self-storage facilities with private accredited investor funds. They also have a real estate debt fund that offers hard money loans to local fix and flippers across the U.S., which currently has a 0% default rate. With a portfolio of over $700 million in assets and controlling over $250 million in equity, they know how to secure the best deals and how to avoid the red flags. If you are interested in learning more, please reach out directly to PassiveInvesting.com and request the free Passive Investor Guide that outlines the seven red flags for passive apartment and self-storage investing. Visit PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags to download that PDF now. That's PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags. Mark your calendars for the Best Ever Conference, February 24th through 26th, back in person at the Gaylord Rockies Convention Center. Join the experienced community and phenomenal speakers for a weekend of learning the best commercial real estate strategies, building relationships, and quite frankly, having a lot of fun. As a bonus, once you purchase your ticket, you are put into a mini mastermind group to start making connections with other commercial real estate investors immediately. You can get 15% off right now with the code BEC15 at besteverconference.com. That's the code BEC15 for 15% off at besteverconference.com. So you decide to sell, go ahead and get out, yes. cut bait. You transition to single family house flips. Yeah. From San Diego, went back there, took a little bit of time off, went surfing because man, that was exhausting. <laughs> yeah. I bet. And then just started buying and selling a lot of houses. We did a ton in Southern California back in the day. We did one or two small multifamily. One was nine units, one was six in San Diego at the time. I made some money on them. And then 2000- San Diego just made more sense to invest in when all the yeah. property values tanked. Yeah, I think so. You know, it's interesting. I remember at the time, I still had contacts out in Memphis, obviously, and I was doing stuff in San Diego. And I'd call them up every now and then and ask about buying cash flows or rental single families out there. And their numbers at the time were not that much better in terms of gross cash flow than properties in San Diego that we were buying. So wow. I kind of scratched my head and go, well, I can buy stuff in east of Los Angeles. So like Riverside County for 40, 50, 60 K and it's cash flowing really, really well. Why do I want to go halfway across the country in this market? It was a weird market kind of evening out at the time, at least in the single family space that I then found myself playing in. Gotcha. It seems like a no brainer if you're getting the same cash flow in California and in the Los Angeles area or San Diego area. Now it's very different now. It's very, oh, absolutely. But also if if you're still holding anything that you bought 10 years ago in one of those spaces, you're probably pretty happy about it. You then transitioned out of the single family flips back into buying multifamily just as the economy improved. We have a decent number of rentals and we have some self-storage. We don't have any apartments right now in the portfolio. We have some self-storage and a bunch of houses. So we've bought and sold a couple of multifamily over the years since then. Nothing quite as crazy as 112 units again, I think. Well, technically. Gotcha. So single families and self-storage. Mm-hmm. Is that serving two different purposes within your business plan or are they basically just both cash flow plays? Oh, we do all the above. So we cherry pick our main core competencies as a company is the direct to seller marketing that we do. So we do the PPC, we do the calling, we do all that stuff to find deals. And then we kind of take a deal first perspective on what makes the most sense. We're not one of the guys that wants to do 30 wholesale deals a month all around the country. That sounds like too much of an operational headache for me with margins that are too small. And by operational headache, I mean, in terms of just the infrastructure that you have to have in your own company. 
we have most of that, but I don't want the size to make that necessary. When we can do the volume and the margins that I like by doing a deal first perspective on the houses. So we find a house. Hey, what makes sense for this house? Does it make sense to wholesale because it doesn't fit our buy box? Does it make sense to maybe wholesale, do a light dust off and put on the market as is? Or does it make sense based on what we bought it at to just blow it out and flip it? So wholesale and flip have been our biggest profit generators, gross profit this year for sure. And then for depreciation and for cash flow, we'll pick up a couple of rentals. We'll pick up the self-storage that we picked up last year and we'll, we'll play with that. So you're going direct to seller to buy self-storage right now. Yeah, that's where I found it. Gotcha. What size self-storage facilities are you finding doing this? So for us, um, kind of a midsize, what we seem to be able to attract is the owner operator. It's kind of a similar space to the distressed landlord space, I guess, where there's an owner operator probably lives in town, is doing a lot of the stuff himself. And then doesn't want to deal with, if it's a B minus or C property, they have names for the tenants, right? They don't want to deal with Jane and number what you call it, because oh, she keeps saying she's going to pay and she doesn't and sure. all that stuff. Do you have a monthly or annual revenue or a unit count that you're finding these owner operators in? I'm not sure if we have enough volume to have a good number on that, but the 100 unit to 150 unit, there's advantages and disadvantages. They're easier to find, but they're harder to manage once you have them because they take a lot of capacity to manage, especially in-house. So you kind of have to devote a lot of internal resources for it. But once you get a streamline, it's really, it's not that bad. Gotcha. And by what means are you getting direct to seller for these self-storage owner operators? That doesn't seem like a Facebook ad is going to find you a bunch of owner operator self-storage guys. I don't know. I've never tried that. Direct mail, old school and conversations. So we all like to talk about real estate being a relationship game. But then we do mass marketing and call everyone that's an absentee landlord in the city. <laughs> right. And you're making 10,000 calls a freaking month with just one VA. Then you get a whole bunch of VAs and you're making however many more you're making. But we find a better response rate based on a more personal, hey, Tim and Sarah, we're buying stuff in the area, small investors, kind of like you, younger, something that's relatable to them. And then they're like, okay, well, I'm maybe kind of tired of it. Let's have a conversation and see what we can do. Nice. And you said that's mostly direct mail and conversations. Is that specific kind of networking that you're doing to find these guys? No, no, no. That's once the leads inbound, then it's something that I'll take Gosh. instead of one of the team members. A team member might qualify it on a really base level, but then it's just me talking to them and seeing what their goals are and what their objectives are. It's not that dissimilar from an inbound lead really with a distressed house. It's just more complex in terms of the information you're trying to gather. Yeah. So you send a letter they call in, eventually it gets to you and you nurture the relationship until they're ready to sell at a number that works for you. Yeah. That's a play that's been run quite a few times over many years. That's well, good to I, know that, that works in self-storage. That's awesome. That's what kinds true. of returns are you seeing on your self-storage right now? Kind of depends. So the one we bought in the secondary or tertiary market, I'm not really sure what the cutoff is for that. The town's about 100,000 people. So it's definitely a stabilized town with an increasing population growth. We're not trying to buy stuff that's rural in the sticks, that side of the highway kind of stuff. To be honest, I don't sure. really understand that product. And it's 81 units, I think, with a warehouse and an apartment. Not a huge moneymaker, but its gross income potential is about six grand or something like that. And we bought it for 150 or 160K. So it's not bad. Pays nice. the bills, I guess. How, how long ago did you buy it? That one in January or February this year, I think. Oh, nice. Yeah. And how distressed was it when you got it? That wasn't pretty. Got some folks living, hanging out in units, 
You got no fence around it, that kind of thing. So controlled access, not very good. In terms of security, the units, unit security is pretty decent. Grounds were kept up pretty well, but it was an owner-operator thing. It was a guy, I think he had declining health. I think he had some lung issues or something. He'd been managing it forever, had a bunch of residential rentals. And then he just said, you know, I don't really want to deal with it anymore. What will you give me for it? He says, oh, I don't know. What do you want for it? And he gave us a number. So we said that number is pretty close, but let's get a little farther down. And we settled on, I think, 160. I think we closed on that, but I don't remember exactly. We'll get back to the show in a few minutes, but first, some sponsors I'm confident you'll get some value in learning more about. How are you doing on your goals this year, whether it's planning for your goals or whether it's executing on those goals? I imagine one of them has to do with financial freedom, taking control of your finances. And I can tell you that is a possibility within the next one to three years using a proven system created by my friend, Michael Blanc. He's got the program Deal Maker Mentoring Here are some of his students who have been in the program and what they've accomplished. Melanie McDaniel, she closed her first 24-unit joint venture deal and is now pivoting to become full-time in the industry. Within five months of joining, Cheryl Groovy from Atlanta, she had a 34-unit deal under contract and she partnered with two other deal maker mentoring students and together they raised $700,000. And Brian Briscoe, he said thanks to deal maker mentoring, he had the opportunity to accelerate his timeline and go after much bigger deals than he would have on his own. If you are ready to commit to achieving your dreams this year and you've been thinking about getting into multifamily, well text the word Joe to 66866. Again, that's the word Joe. You know how to spell my name, right? J-O-E to 66866. Do it right now while it's fresh on your mind, and let's get you started with your own syndication business. Deals and money. We are constantly seeking deals and money as real estate investors, and I bet you're having a challenge right now, especially with deals, if you're like most real estate investors, because it's tough to find deals right now. But here's the thing. There's a competitive advantage out there that when implemented, it will help you accomplish your objective of getting more deals and or getting more investors. And that is having a great follow-up system. Having a great follow-up is one of the keys to success in real estate. And Follow-Up Boss is the leading CRM for real estate. This is the system you need in place so you can reach out to owners and brokers directly for deals or you can follow up with your investors and you do it all in one spot. The CRM makes it 10 times faster to call and text owners, then integrates those into a software so nothing slips through the cracks. The follow-up boss conversion system and powerful management tools help align your methods and drive growth that otherwise it could have been missed and probably would have been missed. Go to followupboss.com forward slash best ever to get a system in place. And if you need help, they got you covered. Follow-up boss offers experts seven days a week. You can pick up the phone and speak to an actual human being anytime during business hours. Visit followupboss.com forward slash best ever to check out how much time you could save by streamlining your follow-up process. Best ever listeners, they're treating you extra special. You get an extended 30-day free trial, twice the length of the normal trial. For a limited time, go to followupboss.com forward slash best ever and perfect your follow-up. TJ, what is your best ever advice? That's several advice. I think it depends on who's asking them. But the most important one, I think, is focus on your objective and set your objectives about 10 to 15% beyond your current abilities. Instead of too many people get scatterbrained and try to focus on too many different things. And the deep, dark secret is all that stuff probably works. And you can probably make it work for yourself, especially if you're pretty diligent with it. But if you're not focusing on one or two straightforward tasks, 
then it becomes really hard to do a bunch of different things. That's good stuff. Awesome. TJ, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Yeah, let's do it. I'm down. Great. TJ, what is your best ever way to give back to the community? I do a lot of education, a lot of free events. So obviously there's a lot of money in that space, but the gratification part that we get with the events and with the helping bring other people up in the industry, I think is huge. We'd like to see the people that want to improve themselves, take action and see positive results from that action. Honestly, it's more gratifying than walking houses. My whole reason for building a team was I didn't want to talk to sellers. So it's more fun to talk to people that want to better their position. Absolutely. What is the best ever book you've recently read? Unconventional, I guess. 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. Pretty good book. I don't read a lot of real estate books. What's the most money you've lost on a deal? Probably about 1.5 million. That you personally lost in one deal? Well, not personally, but it's what the deal lost. Gotcha. Is that the apartment building in Memphis? or That was a different apartment building. We didn't uh, get into okay. that one. <laughs> well, tell me about it real quick. What happened there? Kind of same story. I guess don't buy stuff in 2007 either. Uh, <laughs> it was less of a value add. And it was the negative part of leverage. So it was 70% occupied. We bought it with assuming a hard money loan that was actually prime plus two at the time. That's that's one seven percent occupied? No, about 70% occupied. Seven zero percent. Yeah, about seven zero percent occupied. So we bought it. We assumed a hard money loan at prime plus two. So the rate was pretty good and it was adjustable. So as prime was going down, it got even better. I think the sellers did a 200K second. We came up with a down payment. And then we actually refinanced out of it a couple months nice. later, but it ended up being in a even less desirable neighborhood when 2010 hit. So where our other property, yeah, where the other property was kind of a C-ish, this was unquestionably a D. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it being a D. So it's just like, it just wasn't economically feasible. We actually ended up short selling that one, which is what it is, I guess. And the ironic thing is the guy that bought it from us ended up losing money also. So it wasn't just a situation of us not being able to operate it. It was a case of the market, which is very different than it is now. Specific to buying in a D market in Memphis right before the recession, this may become prescient again if we see another economic crisis. It sounds like your D market apartments in Memphis got hit harder than your CC minus apartments in Memphis when the recession hit. Tell me about the difference. Tell me what happened. I think... And again, this is probably 14-year-old information, really. So I would take it with a grain of salt, especially talking about these particular markets. Yeah, of course. Because I think they're very different now. It was more overbuilt with more vacant inventory. So even though our property is relatively stabilized, we were across the street from a property that was similar size, I think 90 units, something like that, that was 100% vacant. So there's more of that over there. Wow. And we bought it as a stabilized, just cash flowing thing. And it was making some money when we did. And we figured we could up it as we went along. We did for a while. It was one of the only zip codes in shoot the whole US, I guess, that didn't appreciate from 2011 to 2015-ish. So that's wow. kind of a weird situation where everything else was going like this. It actually had, I think about, a, I don't remember, it's been a couple of years since I looked, maybe an 8 to 10% deflation in that zip code. But again, here's where the grain of salt comes in. Right now, houses in that area in the city have actually gone up about 20, 30% in the past three, four years. So it is going up and I think it's going up for a lot of probably good fundamental reasons, but it's just a very different market. So the biggest issue in my experience with D and C properties, as opposed to the couple of smaller A properties that we've done is if your rent rate is 600 bucks, I guess at the time for a two bedroom, 
a water heater still costs 1200 bucks. Yeah. And a water heater costs 1200 bucks if your rent rate is 1500 bucks. So just the gross expenses can be higher, even on a stabilized property, even if you're managing it well. So that's where the cap rate always comes in as people think of a cap rate as an indication of the risk profile without understanding what the actual risk profile is. If you're buying at a this market, I guess if you're buying at a seven cap, you think you're a rock star, but you're buying there because maybe some of the fundamentals of the property are even once your water heater goes out, even if you put new ones in, it goes back out again in 10 years. Well, then your rent is not going to cover it as well. Does that make sense? It does. You've shared some very helpful information here, TJ, and it's good to know that you are seeing some success now with your single families and your self-storage. Good to know that you're willing to share from your failures, but that you're also succeeding now. And where can people get in touch with you? Absolutely. All over Facebook, on Instagram, both TJ Cozen, Instagram also TJ Cozen, and the website, really creative with this one, tjcozen.com. You can find me there. We do, again, a lot of single families, a lot of self-storage in North Texas and pretty much North Texas. And that's pretty much it. That's awesome. Well, TJ, thank you again for being on our podcast today. Best ever listeners, we hope you have a best ever day and we'll see you tomorrow.